Welcome to episode 15 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my healthy co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, I need to apologize. I am fighting through a uh, sinus infection. How are you doing? Sounds like I'm doing better than you, Winston. Uh, happy and healthy here in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. How's the weather over there? Uh, it's been nice. We had a couple of cold days. Uh, this weekend was was down in the 30s, but uh, 70s in the daytime. So. Still better than the north and the east. Yeah, typical Texas uh, winter. How about you? I guess LA weather, right? Uh, we had a large uh, number of days of rain, and I think that's partly what's contributing to my uh, uh, sinus infection. I, If I had to guess, I'd say the garage has a slight mold issue. Um, so that combined with the sawdust is just not a good day. So hopefully it dries out, which it will because it's California. But um, I I need to figure out what is triggering these issues uh, to my health. That's no fun. Well, I'm assuming uh, if you're spending time in the garage, you've been working on your enclosure. How's that going? I, I almost want to say it's operational. Um, I've been just dialing it in and figuring out how to work with it. Um, had the idea to put a monitor inside the enclosure. Turns out, not such a good idea. Um, the vacuum hose gets in front of it. The Shapeoka, when it homes, is right in front of the monitor, so it's blocking it. So it was just a little too cramped inside. Uh, so I moved it to the outside. I got a, a wireless mouse and keyboard that goes under the Shapeoka. Um, and it's, it's still kind of awkward to use because I have to look to the right um, in order to, like, look at the monitor and such. So I don't know. It's, I, I've made some cuts in the enclosure. It works well, but there are still some small issues I need to work out. Um, and one of the, like the whole point of the enclosure is to reduce long-term, like little nagging things that'll like slow down your efficiency. So like a good lighting, uh, easy to hook up dust collection, um, and one of the issues with how I set up my plexiglass doors is um, there's a little gap where chips accumulate, and when you open the door, all the chips fall onto the floor. So it's it's still sort of adding to the amount of cleaning I have to do. Um, is that something that you've uh, looked into with yours? Because you're putting it together with like 80-20 and stuff. How are your uh, panel gaps and such? Yeah, they're really good because I, I use the... Um channel inserts that go for the panels at least um channel reducers that's what i was looking for it's, it's part of the 80 20 accessories yeah so it seals up like you can if you don't have anything in the center channel you can like turn it one way and it basically just is a trim piece but if you flip it around it has a slot for like a window or panel like to lock it in and it seals the gap so i'm not worried about any of that um i where i ran into some problems um and it may just be you know changes in humidity uh, and a combination of me not picking the best sample of lumber from Home Depot, but my uh, the plywood base that I kind of bolt the whole thing to. Uh, notice there's some gaps in there, so I want to basically, I want this thing to be pretty dust tight. So I took the base off, the plywood base off. It's like a, a three quarter inch plywood. And uh, yeah, it looks like where the 8020 rail sits on like one side, it's actually sitting right on a knot. So there was kind of a gap there. So uh, did a combination of like sanding 
and some i didn't have putty so i just kind of used some wood glue to fill in some of the gaps yeah if you had some sawdust just mix it in there did you go for the 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 cheap plywood or the good plywood pretty good quality sanded right on one side i think maybe both um so it was actually not much work to get it flat it was uh, mostly filling more like um dimples in it i guess i don't know if that's the right word but uh little gaps right where there was either a knot or a piece missing from when i drilled that was the other thing like when i drilled out the the mounting bolts um there's a little bit of tear out so some of that mm-hmm. kind of went past the edge of the 80 20. so my plan is to basically um get that as flat as possible like this little light showing underneath the 80 20 rail and the base or the floor and then i'm going to come back in and either silicone seal it put something on the between the inside gaps to uh, really make it tight. Then I just have to worry about the door. Yeah, that's the only other part. I'll probably use weather stripping or something there. Um, and what you mentioned was a good idea. So uh, I think like the Tormach 440 has that same issue with the chips and coolant kind of build up around the door. So a lot of people put like this little curtain, like a diverter. It's almost like a drip tray, right? That kind of intercepts uh, a lot of that. Um, so I'll probably end up maybe with a clear curtain it goes over the base of the door. It kind of keeps the stuff from getting to the, to the building up in that gap. I know you haven't used it a lot yet, but um, just based on working with it, working around it, uh, have you sort of learned anything? Or if you were to build this again, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I would probably build it to about 70% of the scale <laughs> that I, uh, at least on the height, right? I think it's actually... Um, I can't, so I have two problems with it. One is it sticks out pretty far, you know, it's up against the wall, but, um, it's deep, right. And it has to be for the machine. I can't really do anything about that to get enough clearance, uh, for the spindle to come basically get full travel on the machine without the spindle colliding with any part of the frame or any part mm-hmm. of the enclosure. Um, and then it's, so that I probably couldn't really do much about, um, but the height I'd probably go, so I'd want a meter high. I'd probably... I'd probably go like six inches shorter if I built this again, just so it's not quite as looming in the room. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's kind of a giant among your other CNCs. Yeah, I just wasn't sure how much room I was going to need, uh, mainly for the vacuum hose, but I saw how you did yours. And I was like, okay, now that would have worked pretty good. You had a pretty compact arrangement in there. Mm-hmm. Um, for the, you know, if I, I, I do plan on some point putting a dust boot in there once I start moving away from metal into wood some wood machining on it. So, um, yeah, so I mean, it's, I don't have any really complaints about it. It's just, it's bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> um, I think I would, I would do two things like the, the, the thing you mentioned on the last podcast, I would probably size it for standard, s- standard, uh, sizes on like the plexiglass and panel, you know, two by four or two by two, whatever. Like I have odd sizes for everything. Yeah, the the um, less work and cutting you have to do, the uh, easier your life is going to be. Yeah. So I'd basically look at standard sizes for panels and, and uh, polycarbonate and probably build around, you know, or incorporate that into the design where I could just to, for, for convenience and reasonable shipping, (laughs) that stuff. Um, Yeah. And the other thing is uh, I I won't know until I actually run it is, you know, I, I really care about it being sealed. So we'll see if there's any, different strategy I'll need to do around sealing it up. Um, so other than that, yeah, you know, like I said, I'll be running in the house. So that's, that's really important that I don't end up destroying the air quality in the house with some fine dust of some sort. 
Yeah, usually unless you're like doing finishing on aluminum or, or something like metal particles won't really float that far. Um, although if you do have like an air blast or something, it'll it'll stir it up pretty well, in which case you'll want to sort of maybe put a sock over your uh, router. Yeah, I did that last time I cut aluminum. Yeah, I just started doing that now just because uh, I was doing some aluminum tests with a quarter inch end mill uh, with air blast and the, the chips were flying pretty high like they were bouncing off like maybe about a foot off the uh, the floor of the enclosure off the front plexiglass and then bouncing back towards the machine and it it was very conceivable that a chip could have made its way through the uh router and eroded some of the uh um the carbon brushes yeah or just short out stuff that's what i worry about yeah so i hopefully um i have some tests coming up uh speeds and feeds development you know, kind of the stuff I've been doing, I'm going to expand that to Shapeoko uh, real soon now. I think you knew this. I had my Nomad sent back to Carbide 3D for new anti-backlash, basically a tune-up, right? So I I warned some of the, the consumable items, they were ready to be replaced, mainly the anti-backlash nuts. The Del, I think they're Delrin on that mm-hmm. machine, and they do wear. Yep, they are. Yeah, so like uh, all the all three axes kind of were ready for new ones, and then um, they also updated me to the latest... Uh, spindle latest spec spindle motor and even gave me a a new uh, front window because mine had really become kind of scratched up very few people use their machines as hard as you do yeah yeah i think uh you know the titanium and some of the the aluminum bronze i cut in this thing it was uh it was it was it's been it's had a hard life so uh, i'm looking forward to you know resuming all that stuff so, but i do want to i want to kind of work on speeds and feeds uh, or resume my work on the nomad that I, I kind of like have a half populated database. I want to add some more materials and some more cutters to that. And then uh, start doing the same thing on the shape. Oko. I've been doing a lot of that work on pocket and C lately and to lesser extent on the other mill. Cause I kind of was using those two for a commercial project um, that took me into some kind of new realms on performance on those machines. Uh, but now I want to kind of do similar work with the carbide machines yeah, it's too bad. I was I was hoping you would have gotten further along because uh, I'm just about to start um, employing the Datron single flutes on the Shapeoko. So I was going to try and pick your brain about uh, feeds and speeds for that, but sounds like you're not there yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of wonder if, you know, the, the RPM range is in the same realm as the Datron machines, uh, at least the Neo, like it's uh, 40,000 max RPM, I think. Your machine's probably at 30,000? Um, 30, 32. Depends on the calibration of the motor. Um, yeah, of course, the, your feed rate's a lot slower than <laughs> what those guys can do. I can push like four or 500 in anger, but um, realistically, there's a lot more constraints. And uh, I'm thinking that vibration might be one of them. Because uh, I was trying to run an eighth inch end mill at a... 26,000 RPM uh, and aim for a uh, surface footage of about 800, which is, I think, the lower end of what I saw for carbide and aluminum. Usually it's like 800 to 1200. And so I I figured I'd take the scientific approach and and say, like, let me get a good surface footage. Let me aim for 1,000 chip load. And when it started cutting, I was doing a 2D slotting uh, contour op. It, it just sounded really bad, and I, I immediately just dialed down my feed rates until I was doing maybe three, four, five uh, tenths chip load. Um, and so 
I don't know what it is about the machine or the spindle, um, but there are a lot of uh, macro scale factors that uh, that kind of push you away from the uh, theoretical optimum uh, feeds and speeds. Yeah, and I'm assuming these, I mean these weren't single flute issues; these were just issues more around the machine's uh, rigidity and how far you can push it metal right before you start getting probably some deflection issues along those lines. Yeah, there's there's tool deflection, there's machine deflection, and I'm starting to think more and more that vibration could be an issue. Um, just because when I dialed it down to like 1600, I could hold the uh, the same chip load again, and uh, like like scaling back all the other parameters, like they worked, but just at a lower SFM, which seems strange to me. Yeah, it might just be the tool pressure, right? Is lower. The Shepoko is the unknown realm for me as far as like, I couldn't even give you a rule of thumb where to start on that machine yet because I haven't done enough. You know, I did one, one big aluminum piece and I wouldn't call any of my speeds and feeds there like uh, good recipes. I was getting closer, um, especially with the, the, ta- the uh, Lakeshore Carbide. The, the thing I found was uh, use bigger tools than I'm used to. You know, the one eighth inch stuff did not run so well without coolant. Um, the larger, larger tooling did, cause I think it did better, better chip evacuation with the larger tools and maybe a little more rigid. It's interesting. Cause that's that tool, the, uh, Lakeshore carbide, the aluminum shredder, I think TAS, the task it, uh, yeah, it like, it doesn't, hasn't run, doesn't run on any of well on any of my other machines. So I'd almost kind of forgotten I'd had it. It's a three sixteenths inch cutter, which is probably the main reason it doesn't run well on my smaller machines. But, uh, you know, after trying some small tooling on the shape echo for a quarter inch aluminum plate. I put that in there and it ran really well. So I'll be doing a lot more testing with that tool probably initially. And then, uh, some of the bigger Datron single flutes that I have not run on the smaller machines. I have some, uh, eight millimeter shank tooling that might be too big, but we'll see. That like kind of scares me. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I've got one of them too. I just need to figure out how to mount it because that eight millimeter translates to, I think, five sixteenths roughly are you talking about the collet uh yeah oh yeah there's an e-layer eight millimeter collet that's what i use okay or will be using yeah um yeah they have uh i think three through eight well it's actually that four six and eight is standard and the three the three is a custom order gotcha gotcha i was worrying that i might have to like order the uh the three eighths inch uh collet and then uh downsize from that with an adapter yeah, the nice thing about the larger tooling, uh, on the, at least on the Datron line, you can get the, I don't know if they have balanced four and one eight, eight, eighth inch and smaller. I think they're all, I mean, maybe the balance isn't quite as important on the small ones, but the larger tooling, like the four, mil, four millimeter and above, um, you can get them in a, a balanced option, right? Um, good good for 60,000 RPM, I believe, on the Datrons. So that's, uh, you know, it kind of offsets that, one issue with the larger single flutes that they tend to be kind of naturally unbalanced. So, uh, yeah, especially high RPM. Uh, I, I want to give those a try on the shape of go at 30,000 RPM, see how they run. I would say, make sure that you, um, sort of do that run out check with a dial indicator and sort of just give it a little tap with a, a, a wooden mallet or something just to center it and fix the run out issues. Um, cause there's a lot of variation when you load a tool, in the uh, Makita collet. Yeah, that makes sense because it doesn't, it's not like an e- ER11 collet system. It's, it's router collet, right? <laughs> yeah, just the, do you have the Makita or do you have the DeWalt? 
Um, yeah, I have the Makita and I run e-layer collets on it, which I know are a little bit better than the Makita out-of-the-box collets. Yeah. What I believe uh, is an issue with them is that the taper is only on the front end and it's uh, a lot more aggressive. So you don't have that gradual tapering centering effect. Um, so you can you can accrue a lot of run out if you load a tool really sloppily. Yeah. Okay. I'll look for that. I haven't actually checked it. So I have, um, once I get the enclosure done, I'll go through all the, you know, I've never actually trammed or done all the little tuning on the shape of go to get, uh, like you went through recently. Um, so I gotta go, I go rewatch your videos. And once I'm done, basically, you know, that the machine's been coming in and out of the enclosure as I kind of build it up. I don't really, you know, I'm assuming that's all would be messing up my tram anyway, or my alignment of the frame, I should say. So I'll, I'll go back in once I'm done moving it. Um, as a last step before I start cutting and get as close to square as possible and then uh, get a swell board installed on top and get that level uh, basically faced off to make it flat. Cause I know I have a little bit of a problem right now that some of that will get better as I kind of tweak the, the frames and the mounting screws and stuff. Yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, running that thing. I kind of like what I saw on the last cut I did on the aluminum. I was kind of in a hurry to get that done for as a favor for somebody, but um I like, you know, the very last cut was actually pretty good on that plate I made several weeks ago. What else you got going on in the shop? I mean, sort of going hand in hand with setting up the enclosure is like I've recently started um, really using Air Blast a lot. So I've got a uh, little, it's a little over one CFM uh, hydroponic pump. And I've just been using that to clear out uh, channels when I do uh, my contour testing. And I feel like subjectively, it's made a really big difference in uh, preventing chip recutting and just um, getting a, a cleaner uh, sounding cut. Because um, the problem with like using the dust boots or anything is that that vacuum doesn't reach into your cut channel. So it really doesn't help you with uh, chip evacuation. And the downdraft from the router is too scattered and uh, turbulent to really... Uh, push chips or herd them away from your cut. I, I built a little uh, mount for the Nomad. It slides over the spindle and you can uh, hook up a uh, quarter inch uh, tubing, uh, PEX tubing to it to um, just sort of blow air at the uh, cut. I feel like it's like really improved everything and I almost don't want to do a test without the air blast, but I know for science I need to do a full comparison like uh, two times diameter depth of cut with and without air blast and compare the uh, cut quality. Yeah, I think um, especially for like the slotting stuff or the if you do like the contouring, um, deep contouring, it's going to help a lot. So I've had many suggestions to give that a try and I see it a lot on some of the DIY um, home-built router stuff that don't have coolant, they just have air going. Um, so I actually have one too. I haven't hooked it up yet. Uh, probably going to start with it on the pocket and see for some of the, the finishing tests I was doing. Because even the, even with the horizontal, like the really small chips, like you get when you're doing really fine finishing with the ball end mill, that sometimes they'll stick, especially if I want to use like a, a WD-40 or something to enhance the surface finish. I need something that kind of keeping the little chips off there. Yeah, and with Air Blast, I'm interested in revisiting that, uh, that Lone Star uh, aluminum project. Because that project, we know has issues with like chips rewelding to the surface. So if 
Air Blast does fix that, which should be a pretty easy test, then I can make a really easy conclusion that, hey, this stuff is important. I do that and cut your step over. I think we did 10% on that. I'd go down to like 5% and see what improvement you get with that. Um, so I did some more testing this week in aluminum with small step over, uh, slowly kind of going up closer to, I, I want to get up to, I think I'm going to end up probably 5% step over. haven't got there yet. So I started with a really small step over on the test I talked about in the last podcast. And now I'm kind of basically just doubling them <laughs> and seeing, I'm going to keep going up until I start seeing like, a. uh, I'm getting really good finishes at those step overs I should mention. So. Um, now I'm really just trying to get the time down, right? So how how much bigger can I make the step over before I start seeing degradation in the quality of the of the finish, right? Um, and then I'll just kind of back off and say that's my recipe. So uh, it's definitely ten percent leaves a coarser finish than I'm looking for. Although I use it for most things, you know, unless I really really care. I'm talking about finishes here, right? Where I want to polish it up to mirror with very little effort. So specifically in metal, because in wood, you really can't notice that. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about aluminum brass, um, and I've done some titanium machining lately, uh, grade two on the pocket NC. Uh, haven't done the finishing test yet. That was just uh, adaptive clearing, basically just trying to get some basic recipes for uh, material removal, and then I'll move on to, fin you know, that's all in preparation to try to work on some finishing, finishing tests in titanium. So I did grade two. I posted about that on Instagram basic pocketing in grade two with adaptive clearing and small tooling. And it actually worked. Uh, the entry was really, really bad. <laughs> you know, the helix entry. Um, my last test was actually okay. So I basically backed off the diameter of the helix and also slowed down the, the or lowered the angle, right? I think the default is two. I normally enter at 1.5. I think I backed off to like close to 1% helix or one degree, sorry, helix entry angle. That's, yeah, that sounds, uh, pretty gentle. Uh, I know in aluminum I found about 1.7, 1.8 to be good on a hobby machine. Backing off even more than that is pretty slow. This is titanium. <laughs> um, and I was using it one thing. I think the other um, so I, I tested with what I considered the, the worst case tool uh, that I would try in titanium on one of these machines and that was a 1 8 inch four flute. Um, so I'll, the next test will be with the 1 16th which is actually what I used on the Nomad a uh, year or so ago when I cut some titanium. Uh, that was also grade two. And the 116th worked really, worked okay. It was slow. Um, I can go faster on the pocket and see you got considerably more power behind the spindle there. You know, basically what I saw with the 1/8 inch tool makes me uh, very hopeful on the 116th that actually might actually be usable machining dry. Yeah, the tool, my 1/8 inch tool came out fine from the test, looked at it under the microscope no damage to it. Like I did get some damage I did on the Nomad, uh, the one eighth inch tool I started with there didn't survive. The one sixteenth did. I expect grade two to be okay. I have some grade five that I'm going to test next grade five titanium that probably will not work. We'll see. I'm coming at this as a complete noob. What are like, I'm assuming the grade is sort of like, uh, the temper of aluminum. Uh, so as you go up the scale, it gets harder. Well, so grade two uh, is also commercially pure. It's uh, basically almost pure titanium. I think it's, I'm going to say it's 98 or 99% titanium. Uh, grade five is one of the alloys. So it's uh, it's also called 6AL4B. So it's 6% aluminum, 4% um, 
vanadium, right? Okay. So that's a much tougher uh, than pure titanium. It's a much harder material. That's a more commonly used alloy in aerospace and medical too, actually, they use it a lot. Grade two is actually soft relative to the other titanium, you know, or relative to the alloys. It's a little bit softer. Uh, it can be actually trickier to machine because it's a little gummier than grade five, but I think on my machines that, that probably helps me a little bit. <laughs> so we'll know pretty soon. I, I'll, I'll try the grade five and see uh, if it's, you know, I'll use the grade two recipes and see how those work. I'll probably have to back them off a little bit. Um, but I'm going to start with one sixteenth tool on the grade five. I'm not going to bother with the one eighth. Have you figured out the uh, most efficient way to evacuate your machine if it catches on fire? <laughs> Throw it out the window. <laughs> it's not very far from the window. Um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I don't think I'm removing enough material here or generating enough heat to worry about it, but I probably should look at a Class D fire extinguisher, especially, you know, someday I want to do zirconium too, so <laughs> um, wouldn't be a bad thing to have. Yeah, so my Nomad's back. Uh, I'll start using that this week. Um, I'm going to go make some, a few more spinners for, uh, I know I'd actually promised, uh, George at, at carbide one. So, um, I'll finish that one. I want to make sure that one's hundred percent made on the nomad. And then I'm going to go and, uh, do some more speeds and peat testing on that. I don't have much left to do on the nomad. It's basically just going to make it consistent with what I do on the shape of go. So as materials, uh, cutters will be different, right? Cause I can't run the, the big cutters on the nomad, but. Um, I can definitely have good recipes for both machines for broader library of material than I have today. Other than that, like, do you have any, any projects you're excited to sort of get to? Cause I know your, your project schedule sort of been thrown out the window by like, uh, client jobs and testing and all that. Yeah. So I actually, um, I finished up, I'm kind of between jobs. I have something that's starting later this week, um, commercial work, but I finished up those, uh, first article parts and. Um, kind of gave me a little bit of time to get back to fixtures. Um, actually one of the, what, one of the ones I'm going to need for the upcoming jobs. So I did, uh, uh, big problem I have like, or not big problem, but an annoyance I've been having with the pocket and C. Um, I like to use the vice. It's actually a pretty nice little solution, but on some of the, like, like the titanium stuff I want to do, I have some plate material. Um, the testing I did earlier this week was in bar, but I have a lot more plate than I have bar. So, uh. I want to get some uh, plate material mounted on the on the vise, um, but the issue is that vise sits pretty low. It's basically just barely off the table when it's in the standard adapter that Pocket and C sells, um, which is normally fine. You just use longer tooling and the long tool holder. But I want to be able to use uh, for titanium. I want to use stub tooling, right? Really short tooling and ideally the short tool holder to get a really rigid setup, or as rigid as you can get on that machine. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, I feel it, like in theory though, there's sort of a trade-off because the uh, rotary axes there's also a rigidity factor there so you got to try to figure out what the right balance is do you want to extend your tool holder or extend off the uh, table right right so i think um you know I'm, I'm actually what i'm building up this beefy right compared to the tool holder and a, and a small tool small long tool right so i have a lot more material behind the riser than i do the tool holder it's my thinking right I mean, I know the bed itself, you know, the whole, the whole frame, right. That kind of increases the lever point if I'm standing stuff off away from the table, mm -hmm. but yeah, the goal is to basically get the material closer to the, uh, spindle nose because there's, you run it, basically you run out of Z 
z-axis travel uh, with short tooling short tool holder and stock sitting pretty far or pretty close to the bed right it needs a like a lot of the bigger vmc's that you need to get your vice up off the table especially like a a, a robo drill or something right um their their spindle just doesn't come down all the way so i'm going to try to do that i actually did a delrin uh vice vice riser that i finished last week i posted that on instagram that came out really good um fits real well uh basically get bolts to the machine tested all that now i just got to uh get my material cut and start with the test next week using the vice how's your experience been with uh machining in the uh, dowel pins to align it with the uh, b-table like do you hold the same tolerances and accuracies as the the i'm assuming big vmc they used to machine the pocket nc oh that's been good the pins um so i've made quite a few various fixtures right for the pocket nc and they all use the dowel pins for alignment so that's i've gotten pretty good at getting that machining dialed in and it's tight my holes are tighter than the ones in the bed like the pins go into my bed pretty easily in and out it's very very loose i wouldn't call it loose but it's a easy slip fit right so i go for a little bit tighter on the fixtures uh, i usually don't hit that on the 3d printed ones there's so, too much variation like sometimes they're too tight sometimes they're too loose so i have to actually have to make those a little oversized to consistently make sure the pin will fit um, but in delrin i was like delrin and the aluminum ones that i did i basically that's it's not quite press fit i but i have to get it out with the tool like i have to kind of push if i push it in i then have to press it out like with the uh hex wrench right coming to the other side you won't just you can't just pull it out with your fingers so it's a pretty good interference fit i guess it's probably the word i'm looking for so and it does not wiggle around at least on my on the fixture it doesn't it wiggles around a little bit on the on the rotary table um and i've had good you know I, i've had good alignment i haven't had any problems with that i get good repeatability um like especially those orange the printed vices i'm sorry the printed uh, fixtures that i use the 3d printed ones uh, i've taken those off and on many times and made parts and not have them not be where i expect them to be um oh i, I wanted to maybe not quite backtrack but just to suggest an experiment um if you throw a dial indicator on your uh, pocket NC and then just get a like a fishing scale or something um, do the same test that pocket NC does put five pounds see what the deflection is if you have your riser on the bed and then also just mount the uh, dial indicator to the bed and like um, indicate off a long end mill and just pull on the end mill uh, see what the, the ratio of deflection is bed versus spindle yeah that's interesting I have I've checked well no i haven't checked deflection like with weight i've checked run out on the rotary table um i've checked spindle run out what i have not done is yeah it would be interesting to actually have the indicator connected to the say i guess yeah i'd have to connect it to the bed then have it touching the a tool right and then see if there's any visible deflection pushing on various parts of the machine right or putting a weight yeah, on it or just relative to some other part on the chassis that uh you would consider like a solid reference surface. I can definitely notice a difference uh, between the short tool holder and the long one um, with small tools, right? With the, and then I also know, uh, you know, I notice when I have a long tool sticking out like a, a long reach stub, um, you know, I did definitely notice some deflection there. And a lot of it's in the tool because it's a really small tool usually that I'm using if it's long reach and it's just 
typically using it for finishing, but if it runs into like some heavier material, um, those give me some trouble that I don't get with the shorter tooling. It's worth, you know, I don't see problems, so I haven't really dug into it too much other than when I first got the machine, just to, out of curiosity, I checked the, like I said, the spindle run out and the uh, rotary table. Yeah. Post calibration, they're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I, I have the mounting plate now so I can actually get the Noga arm on the spindle and do a lot of checks. Um, connected to the the z-axis that's that's kind of new i haven't actually taken advantage of that yet but it's all ready to go yeah i didn't do any commercial work this week um got a couple of things coming up that i'm trying to think no i can't talk about (laughs) i'll delete that uh yeah the only i mean i'm hoping this part i can talk about i'm hoping um you know that i've worked on those delrun gears and the aluminum shaft subsequently i had a conversation with the client and i think they were happy with both parts, but I kind of told them I don't think I'm the right guy to make the aluminum. You know, I can make those for you, but probably not at the pace that you need them. Um, the gears are no problem. So uh, I'm hoping to get the the uh, some more work related to those gears, start making them in larger numbers, the the small Delrin gears. So those are actually, they were kind of fun to make and fun to come up with the, the work holding for those. You and I have very different definitions of fun. <laughs> well, I like the challenge of it. Yeah. The, you know, forces me to learn something new. So that was, uh, that one was kind of fun. I, I don't think I've ever technically done a multi-piece fixture. Like I, I had the, when I was doing the spinners, I really just had two plates of stock on there and the plate itself was the fixture, right? I was doing, um, a combination of screws and some pre-drilled parts or holes in the part, right? So they would hold it once it got separated from the stock, but at the very end, but it was really just flip the plate, right? Um, I, I thought of it as basically two parts, even though I was getting five pieces out of each of the parts. The fixture was very simple. It was just threaded holes on a plate. Um, the one for the gears is a little more complex because uh, I'm dealing with each part individually. Each piece of, each uh, gear comes from its own uh, starting stock. It's not like connected. I'm not doing it out of plate, uh, although I'm going to look at that <laughs> in the future. So doing it out of round stock right now because it, it kind of works pretty well. Um, and designing a fixture to hold, you know, multiple pieces around stock, uh, on the, the, uh, Bantam tools machine. And it's kind of, that was kind of neat. I like doing fixtures. So, uh, I'm kind of curious, do you see your sort of prototyping gig? Do you think that's like financially feasible to actually run as a business? Yeah. The prototyping for sure. Um, doing production run parts. Like these gears are probably stepping a little bit, like for me, it's bigger than what I would consider a prototyping job. Although the client, I wouldn't be surprised if they still think of this as prototyping and kind of volumes they're talking about. Um, but it, you know, it'd be tying me up and my machines up for a while every time I get an order for those. Um, but the, what I consider prototyping one to five parts, uh, closer to one, usually one off. Right. Um, Depending on the work and if you quote it right, it, yeah, it can be, I think it can be uh, uh, practical. You know, you just got to be careful about taking on work that's within the realm of what you can do and what your machines can handle, right? Uh, both, you know, combination of size and materials, usually the limits that I run into. Either someone wants something way too big or, you know, they want it on some, they want it like in uh, some crazy, you know, super alloy or something. It's like, no, I don't think so. Um, but now, yeah, the ones I have taken on, uh, I think they've all been good for me on the financial side and, and the client was happy with the part. So that's kind of the win I'm looking for. 
Um, and you get better as you do more of these, you kind of get, you learn to be efficient about it, even for one-off parts. Um, you know, I think they were t like John Saunders, they were talking about on, on their podcast, you don't necessarily need to build a complex fixture for a one-off, right? That's probably actually, a, <clears throat> that's probably a lose, right? You're spending a lot of time on work setup. Um, so yeah, you start looking for just what's the quickest way I can make this uh, accurately, right? I, I was actually thinking a little earlier about uh, Vince Ramirez and just his business case. You're not making money unless the machine is running and he's like making one unique part and then pivoting to the next project. So it's it's really tough to to justify like a five or six figure machine when your your setup time and your your CAD cam time is probably as much as what the machining is. Oh yeah, and on prototyping, I mean a large part of the charge is for that, right? For the CAM the CAM programming and um, you know, if it requires work holding, because that's the only way to do it is through some sort of custom work holding, um, then that's all billable time, right? So usually on prototyping, they're, they're, they're kind of understand that it's one off and that they have to pay for that, whatever it takes to get it done, tooling and everything. If it's production, right? I, the one production job I have, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I quote a little differently, right? I, I look for like a, you know, a, pre, a unit price, right? For the, for the part. And then I try to figure out the most efficient way to make it within that price. Um, so hopefully at some point, if there's efficiencies to be captured by better fixturing or better process, you know, I'll, I'll benefit from them and potentially the client would too, if, you know, gives me the opportunity to give them a better price later. So, or, or bigger volume discount, right. Up to whatever's, you know, practical for a small spare bedroom shop. Not talking millions <laughs> or even thousands, probably. Maybe a, you know a low thousand would be uh, over you know a long a generous time period would be doable, but I don't want to really just turn into a you know full time uh, production shop here. So, but I really took that job because um, I wanted to see kind of what it would be like to do a little bit larger scale repeat work because this would probably mm -hmm. be you know, if I get if I land this will be my first uh, repeat for the same part, um, and it's everything kind of works out right as far as time and the amount of parts they want, um, per, per unit of time, I mean, per time period, right. Per PO. So it's not like a crazy delivery schedule. It's actually pretty practical for what I can do here. Do you have any concerns about the uh, pocket NC long-term? Cause I know like with the nomad, there is somewhere in that anti-backlash nut. Um, I don't like the pocket NC is too new. Like we don't have that lifespan data. Yeah, I would expect, um, I think some of the lead screw components or the nuts, the followers, right, are, I think there's Delrin in there or maybe a Teflon impregnated Delrin. I don't really know. They look like, yeah, I can see them in there, right, the white plastic. So, uh, and the other mill's the same same way, right? It's got um, plastic wear components on the friction surfaces. So I would assume, you know, over time that stuff's all long-term, it's um, consumable, replaceable part, right, or that might need replacing. And eventually even the lead screw might, right? If it's gets enough wear. Yeah, but I mean ideally you design the uh the most consumable item to be like orders of magnitude uh weaker than the lead screw so that you don't need to replace that. Yeah. And I don't know how difficult <laughs> it is. So especially on the pocket and see that machine's you know, it's got a lot going on in a very tight volume. It's a pretty pretty amazing piece of engineering. Um I don't know, like the nomad you know, I would have happily done all the work myself that I sent it off uh, mm -hmm. to be done. You know, Carbide actually 
offered to take it back because I, I, I'm assuming they wanted to take a look at take a look at it too, right? Just kind of see how it was do a little out. bit of a post mortem on the parts. Yeah, yeah, because I, I have again just like the the V2 Pocket C. I have one of the earliest uh, Nomad. 83 pros that shipped. I think I, I think mine was in the second batch that shipped. Um, so yeah, and I, they know what, I, what kind of a use and abuse I put it through. So it's a good one to look at, pull back and kind of see how it's wearing over the years. Um, see if they guessed right on what were the wear components were going to be and, and what maybe the surprises were. Um, so the same yeah, thing, especially with because the, it's a first gen machine. Like yeah. there's a lot of unknowns when you're, when the, the guys were designing it. Yeah, and I and I don't think like it's the norm for carbide to do like I don't know if they normally take machines back and do uh, repairs on them. I'm not really sure. Or you know, I know they have a warranty, and you know, I think like when I've had issues in the past, they just send me the parts, and I, it's a very easy machine to work on yourself, right? So um, yeah, yeah, I'm curious about the pocket and see. I've never had an issue where like it, you know broke something or wore something out and. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I might ask them next time I talk to them if there's, if they're, you know, what is their kind of long-term machine maintenance and upkeep process? Is it going to be user replaceable parts? Is it, does it go back? Or I'm kind of curious because it, it does look like it would be a little bit tougher machine to work on um, and, you know, to take apart and then get back together accurately. Without, it's linear rails, so actually it's probably not that hard as long as you don't pull the rails off. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but like, um, it's just not a lot of room to get to any, like any of the pieces. It's very compact design. So, um, and I don't, yeah, I don't even know what black magic's, magic's going on underneath the, like the rotary table. Yeah. I haven't peeked inside yet. So uh, yeah. <laughs> it's all a mystery to me. Yeah. I pretty much have my nomad apart, you know, pretty much the whole thing, except for, I haven't never pulled the, the carriages off the rails, but, uh, pretty much everything else I've had apart in the past spindle and everything else. So, um, I haven't had, had, haven't done anything like that on the, on the uh, the pocket and C, so but I haven't needed to, so that's good. And actually, most of the stuff I did on the uh, on the Nomad was really wasn't. There's a couple of things that you know I wore out or broke. Um, the rest was really just keeping up with some of the uh, improvements they made on the electronics over the years. They, I think the earlier boards were a little fragile to stack electricity, or they had issues. With, you know, the drivers would usually not last very long. Um, so I think they fixed that in their later rev of the board. And I, once I got one of those newer boards in, I never had any more problems with the Axis, uh, Axis electronics. But yeah, it's um, I'm kind of curious. That's a good question. I will follow up. Maybe I'll have an answer for us on the next podcast. Yeah. I would be really surprised if there's anyone else in the world who's pushing the machine harder than you. I don't know. Uh, the pocket and see, I've seen some crazy stuff going on out there. So uh, I don't see that. Yeah, in the Nomad. Um, well, Chris is doing some pretty. Chris Lee is doing some pretty interesting stuff on uh, his on his Nomad, um, especially in aluminum. But uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I haven't seen anyone else do titanium <laughs> on, <laughs> on the pocket and see. Of course, uh, Apollo did it on the Nomad first, and I, I just that followed was with his cooling. recipe. Like to. to uh, cut- Taking yeah, it was dry is is something else. Well, I did it with coolant on the Nomad. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know if I. I only did it dry on the pocket and because that's the only choice I had. Unless I, you know, could figure out some way to get an MQL, non-flammable MQL, because there's a, like I said, there's exposed electronics on that machine. I don't think it could handle any kind of liquid safely. Um, but 
since I did the, or in the, the time after I did the Nomad titanium machining, uh, a few, more than one, at least instant machinist reached out to me and said, you know, there, there are people successfully doing titanium dry. Um, and they kind of gave me some, some strategies and suggestions around tooling and coatings and, and speeds and feeds. Um, and I'm kind of working with those. Some of those are too fast for my machine. You know, I think they're still, the people that are doing the dryer are still doing on full size VMCs. Um, I don't know why they're doing it dry. I'm kind of curious about that. <laughs> uh, maybe for testing, right? Uh, some sort of testing. So, but yeah, so I, I mean, so far I like what I'm seeing um, with the possibilities for doing at least, you know, occasional titanium on the pocket and C. Um, it was a bit of an ordeal on the Nomad, even with coolant. Uh, it went a lot smoother on the pocket and C, I'm sure. And I'm almost positive that's due to spindle power being a little higher there. Uh, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and probably work holy. <laughs> so, no, actually, no, I was thinking I, I did bolt this stuff. I did have it bolted down in the, in the, when I did on the, on the nomad, I couldn't remember if I was using double sided tape or, or bolt down, but I had it bolted down. So that was pretty rigid. So yeah, it was probably just spindle power. Um, it's got just enough there to, to remove a little bit of titanium on the pocket and see. Um, so yeah, I'll do more. I'm going to do more testing. I actually want to build a part out of titanium. So, uh, something small, maybe another one of those, uh, lanyard beads. It's just yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, once the testing's done, I'm going to actually take it all the way through the end and see if I can get a, a small part out of it with the, you know, at least looking at least as good as the stainless steel part I did. Mm, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Especially like just those are little things like sort of in the EDC class, uh, product that, uh, that could be fun to, to knock out a couple of those maybe. Yeah, I mean the material removal rate was pretty low compared to like aluminum. So you know, the part you'd want it to be smaller, you're gonna be there for weeks, <laughs> machine, right? Um, and I probably won't do much more until I actually do think I'm gonna get a class D just to be just for peace of mind, just in case I have any issues. But uh, with the flammability of titanium, right? I, again, I don't think I I can't tell the actual temperature at the cut, but um, I wasn't getting like a really hot tool. I was watching it and touching it and checking with the the infrared. There are no signs like with steel, right? You get blue chips. There's nothing with titanium like visually that you can assess. Uh, yeah, you get fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it starts going up like a flare, you know you're you're, you're probably reaching ignition temperature. Uh, no, uh, actually, it's like all the titanium fires I've seen, I've seen some on Tormox. Like, um, there's quite a or there's a few videos out there where they're machining titanium with the MQL, like the low quality, like not using flood, um, but using some coolant. And it's, um, the fires, like I've never seen them start at the cutting point. It's the chips that are building up in the pan is where the fire always seems to start. So um, I think there's a, you know, there's some chemistry involved there with raw titanium, uh, raw exposed titanium, you know, reforming an oxide coating that involves generation of some heat exothermic reaction that probably plays yep. a part in that. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it's the actual cutting heat that's coming from the cutting tool or the heat that's happening from the, the oxidation, um, after it's been cut and exposed to air. That's probably, it's probably the latter. That's the real risk. Um, which I think, you know, flood helps with that, right? It keeps the, keeps the surface coated and not exposed to air. If there's oil film on it. And also just brings down the temperature a lot. Again, I'm not sure if the temperature, like you might start with the room temperature chip and then the, te the temperature rises from the oxidation chemistry. Um, 
I don't know if, well, I guess if they're still cooling going over it, that would help carry that heat away. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of thing I, you know, I'm not generating a lot of chips. So even if they did catch on fire, it's not going to burn very long. Tiny amount of chips here compared to even like a Tormot. But again, you know, I don't know if there's any risk of the actual stock catching on fire. If there is, that would be a little bit bigger issue. You'd really just be worried about burning through the enclosure. Yeah, exactly. And then my foundation of my house and <laughs> the, the core of the earth. Right? <laughs> titanium does burn pretty hot. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of the titanium stuff was fun because um, I don't know why I've got an obsession with that metal, but I, I want to be able to have it like a reproducible uh, recipe for making small parts, occasional parts. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do titanium as a regular job on any of these machines I wouldn't recommend it because it's probably really tough on the spindle bearings and everything else on these machines but um you know i want to try to get something that's light enough that these machines can handle it in occasional uh, occasional jobs so I, I have more to do there um but it's looking promising on the, at least on the pocket nc so i see speaking of uh dealing with tough metal challenges you've been doing uh some pretty deep cutting in aluminum lately i've been sort of for carbide 3D, but also for my own curiosity. I want to come up with a good recipe I can give to hobby machinists. And the the challenges challenges with aluminum, I think, are primarily like uh, chip clearing and just dealing with the vibration and, and inherent rigidity issues of the machine. So Primarily Shapeoko or Nomad or both? Both. Um, I've done some testing in the Nomad, and so there's what I... I consider it to be like a death spiral of like once you get a little chatter and the cutter starts ping-ponging across the walls, like you're just going to end up destroying your part and your cutter. Um, the Nomad's a lot more resilient t uh, against that. Uh, you might have seen uh, a couple weeks ago I was doing testing, just deep slotting without any chip clearing. So you could just see the end mill just like plowing through a pile of chips. And I'm, I'm sure that triggered a lot of insta-machinists who might have crossed my uh, feed. But I was trying to see if whether or not, A, the machine could do it, or if the effects of the chips being in the way would just uh, cause that uh, chaotic decay in cut quality until the, uh, the, the cut just failed, or if it would actually work. Because um, for a very long time, I've been super reluctant to use a 2D contour in metal on a hobby-grade machine. And with the air blast, I'm finding it's actually kind of feasible, um, at least to 1.5, two times the diameter of the cutter. Um, so it's maybe, maybe there's a way to, uh, to get around my, my reluctance to make these kinds of cuts. Maybe there is a way to do them reliably and repeatably. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I think, um, so I've, I've done, I do quite a bit of the 2D, uh, profiling around like uh, plate stock where I just wanted to get the part out, you know what I'm saying? Um, or get the basic net shape out and then go do something else with that piece. So I, I tend to do that uh, 2D contour with a small diameter tool, small multi-flute in aluminum. Um, I usually do pretty shallow cuts, like uh, each pass is like 0.25 or 0.3 millimeters until I get to the bottom. It works, uh, especially with coated cutters. That made a big difference for me when I was, I did it with the standard carbide, like the early standard carbide tooling that was uh, uncoated. And I would often run into um, 
that would be the cut that would end up with chip welding. Um, but with the ZRN and even, even more so with the MOS coated stuff, the molybdenum disulfide stuff, um, it seems to be pretty forgiving, even on the really bad, uh, chip recutting. And I go in there, I will vacuum, like I'll run the vacuum every couple of passes to get the chips out. But yeah, I, don't, I think air blast would really help a lot. So if you get that going, you can probably make a much more aggressive, uh, depth of cut. And I think also uh, single flutes, um, because you're only ever getting one contact point. You're never going to have an issue where like you get chips on like both sides and um, like just the wall will uh, the both walls are adding extra friction on the uh, cutter and and slowing everything down. Um, I, I think single flutes are a lot more forgiving about chip clearing. So that's another variable I am interested in. Uh, uh, experimenting with and hopefully drawing some conclusions that might help uh hobby machinists the datron uh, i don't know if it's because they're polished but like they're uncoated but they're actually that's like the only uncoated tool that i can successfully do the, it's basically slotting right when you do 2d contouring and just full tool engagement um yeah i would have expected to have chip welding because there's no coating on that but uh those have been those have been pretty good at it too the only issue with the so i do the small tooling and I can't really run single flute very fast, right? Because of SSM. So usually, yeah, for that cut, I'll usually grab the electrical carbide. I think I have a three flute, one sixteenth inch ZR encoded that just always seems to do really well at that particular cut. It's like the only thing I use it for. Did you say one sixteenth inch three flute? Yeah, it's one sixteenth inch three flute, three flute um, ZR encoded electrical carbide. I think it's like, so I usually use that in one eighth inch plate and it's, I remember the link. It's I think it's um four millimeter or oh, no it's well it's in inches but it's a little bit over four millimeters uh flute length so it's it's pretty short it's like just just long enough to get through my one eight inch plate I use I do that a lot or I was when I was doing the spinners right because um, that was the final release was basically just to go around the outer profile of the spinner body cut the part out of the plate and I must have done mm. I don't know a lot of those <laughs> passes with that with that tool with like four I think I used four of them since I I ran through or went through four of them in the time that I was doing spinners yeah so that that works pretty good um, single flute is, I did the last very last batch of spinners I did them with the single flute because I wanted to see, I actually tried to move as much of the ops to single flute um, just kind of see how that would work and uh, it worked fine it's like the only issue I ran into was um, it was probably a difference in tool deflection because my, well, actually <laughs> I take it back because uh, I thought there was an issue in tool deflection because stuff that used to fit, like I have some pretty tight tolerances on a couple of like interference fits for the weights and stuff. And um, when I changed the tooling, all of a sudden, you know, ran the same cam basically, except for speeds and feeds and there, the dimensions were slightly different. So I figured, well, okay, this is a little bit smaller tool, single flute, right? That might be deflecting a little bit. Um, but that was also when I found out I had the issues with the anti-backlash. Um, you know, that was like the last cut I made, really. That's where, where I discovered it. So uh, Maybe you can uh, revisit that for your uh, next batch. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So I'm going to rerun that job that I ran before I sent it in and uh, see if I, you know, if it was the tooling or, I'll, you know, if I still see anomalies, I'll run it back with the original tooling. Um, actually, that was the other reason. I, I, I remember now, this was a while back, a couple of months ago, but I posted like one of my spinner batches using the normal tooling. And that was, it sounded terrible. Like it never sounded like that before. It's, you know, got some comments on it. And like, sometimes when I'm recording, I'm not really paying attention to what's going on, especially when it's like a cut I've done a million times. Like that was kind of like almost a production part for me. 
And uh, I should have noticed it, <laughs> but it was obvious on the recording, right? When you listen, it's like, well, that's not what it normally sounds like. And again, that was all, um, it was all kind of really bad when the axis direction was changing. So that was kind of my first clue that I got a little too much backlash. And I think in that case, it was the Y axis, um, but the, you know, they were all kind of a little loose. And, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. So I switched the single flute, um, just thinking maybe I wore my tool out or something like, and I didn't have another one. So oh, I'll try these. I got tons of the, the single flutes. So I'll give that a cut or try. Right. And I was expecting even better finish surface finish with those. Uh, cause I get really good results on that. And, and that worked fine. It was small tool, So I didn't really notice it didn't, it sounded fine when it was cutting. Um, but like I said, dimensions were off and I'm sure the backlash was still playing an issue in that. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably run the, both sets of, you know, the standard tooling I use and the one flute or single flute again and see, um, how the machine performs with that now that it's all in brand new, almost brand new shape. I look forward to seeing your results. Yeah. So I, I should be posting some more titanium stuff later this week or next week, I should say this upcoming week on the pocket and see, um, I still, <laughs> so I've been tempted to try titanium on the, uh, the grade two, at least on the other mill. Uh, I, I was in touch with a, a gentleman that worked for, um, used to work for Bantam tools, uh, since left. And, uh, I don't know if it's okay to mention his name, so I won't at this point, <laughs> but, uh, he, he tried when he was there, he said he did some, he tried some titanium and, and, uh, wasn't, wasn't successful. So, uh, I might give it, you know, I have a different set of tooling a different, a little bit different strategy to try. Um, so I will give it, I'll probably give it a try just to see how bad it is. <laughs> If not, if at all, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work at all, but I'll just, you know, now that I have a dry recipe, I'll, I'll give it a try. I have a faster spindle on that machine, which, you know, I'm not really looking for high SFM and titanium. So I don't know if that really helps me much. Um, but it's, you know, it's much lower power spindle than the pocket. Inside. Yeah. If you bring it down to like a one thirty second inch, you might be okay. I don't know what the torque is. Yeah, so it's a it's a more powerful spindle than what's I think than what's in the Nomad. I think it's signed in between the Shapeco and the I'm sorry the Nomad and the Pocket NC, um, but I'm not really sure because <laughs> that's the one spec they don't publish is the spindle motor wattage. But just based on performance, it seems to like I can drill with that machine um, with the drill that will stall the spindle on my Nomad. Kind of dominating the conversation here. Um, so what do you got planned for this week? Really, it's it's a combination of testing and also videos because I've been sitting on just a lot of content. Like I've been testing aluminum for the past couple weeks. I just made that uh, spindle uh, air blast adapter. And I've also been sitting on like hours and hours and hours worth of uh, enclosure building footage. Um, so... I need to sort of clear my, my hard drive and, and get some of these projects out the door. Um, fortunately, the enclosure stuff is all time-lapse. I filmed it on a GoPro. Uh, not too many close-up shots. That video is probably going to be more of just me talking about the design considerations because there's I don't think there's any value in me explaining how I put together some 2x4s. It's really just the thought process behind, like, why do you want, like, extra clearance in front of the shape oko to the sides? Um... Be mindful of where you're going to run air and power, stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm I'm really glad you gave me the uh, heads up about the front clearance because I, I don't my original design did not have that. I basically had it butting up against the the front of the frame on the machine, and that's that's a bit of a sore subject for me because I didn't take that into account. 
I I built it. I mean, you mentioned it, and uh, you know, so I basically I pulled the I pulled the uh, what's it the X carriage all the way forward, and a Y carriage, sorry, and you know, did some measurements. The, the spindle sticks out quite a bit, right? And then if there's a dust boot on it, like a, a socket or something, you need even more clearance. So I was very generous in that area <laughs> in the front. Which is smart. I wouldn't have known to do that if you hadn't given me the heads up about it. I made a, a grave miscalculation with my enclosure. Yeah. Well, I think yours is wood, so you can always just uh, put longer wood in there. <laughs> I could, but the problem is the side panels are like already cut. So if I stretch the enclosure, uh, the panels don't like line up flush with the uh, the four uprights. So someone had mentioned like maybe just sticking some some two by fours out the front, so you just sort of have like a little extension on the front face, which could work. But at this point, I think I'm I'm too too invested in uh, what I have already, uh, and as long as I size my projects right, like only go up to 14 inches and not 16 inches, uh, like off the front of the, uh, the bed, I think I'll be fine. Yeah. You asked uh, what I would do again if I had to build a second enclosure. Um, one thing I would definitely do the same. I'm really happy with the, the extrusion, the 8020 design. Cause I like that look first of all. Um, so it's probably half aesthetics that, that drove me to go that way. But, uh, it was actually just super easy and it's still like, I can make changes to it fairly easily by just buying different extrusions. Um, so I have some, I have some ideas. Like I might actually mount some, I have like one accessory rail, what I consider an accessory rail, horizontal 30 by 30, I guess 30, 30, 30 millimeter bar at the, it'll go in the ceiling part, the top of the, the roof of the machine. Right. Um, that'll let me hang like hangers for the, to control the cabling kind of the routing of the cabling and vacuum hose and uh, lighting will probably end up with some lighting up there too. So, but there's like, I started thinking when I was seeing what you were mounting inside your enclosure, like when you had the monitor and I started thinking, you know, I could put a few more rails in here and be able to get all kinds of stuff bolted up inside. Maybe uh, the tooling, like I might put the common tooling, like for the collet and all that stuff, uh, keep everything handy and inside the enclosure. So what I've done, um, is I stuck a, a magnet strip outside the enclosure so I can just slap my wrenches and um, like bolts and nuts and washers like just on that to keep them handy. And also I just keep a magnet over a piece of paper so I can use that as my uh, height setting device. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. So yeah, the thing I'm trying to avoid, I don't want any growth on the outside dimensions of this, like stuff sticking out even further because <laughs> like I said, it's big and it's, it just barely fits in the room, um, without causing a problem. So, uh, but I have plenty of room inside the enclosure, especially up in like the upper third, uh, probably, I think I'll have to see once everything's routed and the hoses are and everything like worst case scenarios built out in there. Um, but yeah, I'll probably have some room for maybe even like a little shelf up there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I still have to figure out like where to put the, uh, like right now I use a laptop when I'm running that machine and last two times I ran, it was in the garage anyway. So I needed a laptop, but, um, once I get, you know, once it's in its permanent home inside the spare bedroom, I want to get like a more permanent controlled computer set up for it. Like I have on the nomad. I gotta figure out how to do that. I don't know if anyone, does anyone run these things off of, uh, Arduinos like with the G code sender or something? I think it's possible. 
Raspberry Pi might be more I meant Raspberry prevalent. Pi. Yeah, that's actually what I meant. Um, yeah, kind of like they do with the 3D printers, right? You can get the Octoprint yeah. server. I would it's possible. Okay. I mean, as long as you're transmitting G-code in a way that the uh, Carbide Motion board can interpret, yeah, it'll do it. I wonder if the probing supported, though. So that's, yeah, I don't, I'll either get a, you know, dedicated computer for that or um, actually have an old Windows laptop that, like what you're doing, a tablet slash laptop that might work. I never use Windows here. I'm a Mac guy, but I had to buy that for something that, an app that ran Windows and didn't run under emulation uh, back in the day. So, I don't know. Yeah, that's the last piece I have to figure out, lighting and then the, uh, you know, workable, basically way to get it hooked up and uh, so I can send jobs to it through either carbide creator, I'm sorry, carbide motion or uh, third party control solution there. I don't know if I want to dedicate it. Like I have a Mac mini dedicated to the nomad and a couple other things here. Um, but I can't, as far as I can tell, I would use that for the shape Oko too, but I can't, um, as far as I can tell, I can't run carbide, like two instances of carbide create, or I'm sorry, carbide motion on the same Mac, like, or the same machine doesn't, handled two different like a shape echo and a nomad right it's either one or the other um universal g-code sender might work because you can specify which com port um it communicates through carbide motion it defaults to like whatever your uh default usb port is and it'll only read to and from one machine unless you virtualize an instance which one gets assigned? It's whichever one probably got assigned the first COM port, right? On boot up. So probably. Yeah. So anyway, so I got I got that to figure out and that's pretty much it. Then I, I hope to uh you know, get everything nailed down before this month is over. So the Shape Oko can be can be kept busy. I don't know. I think I said that Good last month that. too, right? <laughs> but Yep. And we were joking about who's going to finish their enclosure first. And I think I'm there. Yeah, mine is not finished. It's like I said, it's a little uh, straighter than it was when we talked last time and a little better sealed, but uh, I still don't have front windows. So that's the last piece I have to actually be able to use it. Uh, the lighting, all that stuff's, uh, especially the, the vacuum hoses. Like I don't need that right away. I'm mostly going to be doing metal. Um, I do, I do need lighting, um, but I have a solution basically straight waiting to bolt in once I get the, accessory rail hooked up you'll get there I'm, I'm thinking by march yeah now i like your uh your macro gopro solution that looks really good um my ex- one experience with the uh, gopro inside the machine i had it like mounted inside the pocket and see for uh i think i was using to get footage for the uh the cam challenge last time and it was like all it was too close i couldn't get a good focus it was kind of blurry i guess because it was too near um, couldn't get couldn't get a t- good enough focus with the. I guess it has infinite focus, right? Is what they're kind of set to. It's for all intents and purposes, yes. Uh, anything closer than about ten inches tends to be a little blurry. So, like, if you want to record on the Pocket NC or on the Nomad, Nomad table is eight inches diagonal, a little more, but you're gonna have to bring in that focal distance a little bit to make it work. And as is. I'm using all of my uh, macro adapters. Like I've stacked three on top. Yeah, so I may uh, I may hit you up for that design and do something similar here. Cause I, I I have a couple of you know good places to mount it where it's out of the way of the moving parts of the machine inside the enclosure. And uh, yeah, I'm looking for something like I do a lot of recording with the iPhone 
but a lot of times I end up with like chips on the window and I can't really, I don't want to open it because I'll end up with chips all over the room when it's cutting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if I just had a machine, you know, a camera that was always going inside the machine that might get some alternate footage out of that. Sometimes it could save a, save a missed opportunity or a missed shot. Anyway, so I, I do like that solution. It looks really cool too. Um, I just need to figure out how to remove it more easily. Got a suggestion from uh, Switch and Lever uh, on Instagram, and uh, he was thinking if you put a like a magnetic phone mount on it, just a steel adhesive plate, and you put magnets on the adapter side, you might be able to pull it off. I just need to see if the vibration might cause the uh, filter to shake a little. But if it doesn't, then it's a good way to go. How are you holding it on now? Is it adhesive? Uh, yeah, I'm just using the basically the the craft paper double sided tape. I was gonna use VHB just to add some thickness because uh, I'm a little close to the lens, but uh, I, I pulled off the uh, protective cover off the lens and I was able to cram the uh, the macro adapters over it without uh, contact. I don't know if everyone's seen uh, Winston's latest Instagram updates, but um, what we're talking about is he did a macro lens adapter for his GoPro camera so he could record, uh, I guess I want to say close-ups, but you, you could get the camera much closer to the uh, cutting action, uh, like mount it inside the machine. Basically giving the GoPro a prescription lens. Yeah, you were looking for like 12 inch or less probably focal range, right? It's six inches. Six inches, yeah. So um, the solution looks really good. Uh, There's a good bit of uh, aluminum machining and some thread milling in that project. Uh, I thought that and the final product looks really good. So um, check out his Instagram page. And I don't know if you've posted the YouTube part. Not yet. I Again, I'm backlogged on my videos. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing that um, that full project come out on YouTube. Because I think I'm actually going to, I might try something like that. Or exactly that. Because <laughs> I don't want to design my... I honestly would just 3D print it. Maybe thread mill into the plastic. And I don't think that would work. There are people who actually, they print the threads in plastic and on a, a filter that wide, like 52, 55, 58, um, it's almost forgiving enough that you can pull it off. But um, if I were to try and iterate on this, I hate to say it, but I might actually opt for a 3D printer. Well, I don't know if you, you may have de dedicated that camera to this one purpose, so you don't really care about necessarily taking those that front plate off, but... Yeah, I, I do have two GoPros, so uh, I can afford to leave one on the machine. But actually, if you unscrew the lenses, it's a normal GoPro again, right? Other than you're, I think you're missing the, the dust cover. But other than that, it's going to be back to its normal function. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So anyway, that's worth checking out. Um, yeah, the other issue with it was I, I didn't have a very... I, I mounted it to a place that was picking up some vibration. So the whole camera was, you know, was out on a Noga arm and it was the whole... Uh, it was on, I had it like attached to the enclosure with the magnet. So that sheet metal was vibrating a little bit and the camera way at the end of the arm was vibrating a lot. So it was like not very good footage, even if it was in focus, but it wasn't. So, um, anyway, yeah. So maybe more rigid mount next time. Um, now that I have the, the ability to mount stuff on the spindle, that, um, the spindle housing, that might work. Be an interesting perspective. All right. Well, I think we're probably, I think we're over an hour here, right? We are. So it's, it's about time to wrap it up. Any last things you want to cover? Uh, not really, nope. All right, well, Winston, I'm going to say good night. All right, good night.